I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is an Apostrophe podcast production. is We Regret to Inform You, The Rejection Podcast. Moonstruck, unable to think or act normally, especially because of being in love. Oxford English Dictionary. One day in the 1960s, a young Bronxite named John Patrick Shanley decided on a career path. He would become a poet. But not just any poet. He would be the next Cyrano de Bergerac, a tough poet, a swordsman with words. But Shanley would later tell Vulture he realized the son of a meatpacker could never become a sonneteer. He says it wasn't seen as a particularly masculine pursuit. Plus, there was no room for big aspirations in his 42-square-mile borough. So he decided to pivot. He moved out of the Bronx and down to Lower Manhattan, where he shifted his focus from poetry to playwriting. He says what he would soon find out was that playwriting was a way to, quote, solve his life a channel through which to attack his fears and paint a picture of what, say, an exciting relationship looked like, or a loving family. There was just one teensy fly in the ointment. Shanley was broke. 
the life of a playwright, it turns out, was one of rejection. Ten years had passed, and he'd achieved only modest success off-Broadway. He says he was slowly starving to death. He knew if he wanted to make a living writing, he'd have to follow the money. So he fired up his typewriter and decided to dream up a screenplay. As Shanley stared at the blank page before him, he decided to write what he knew about his childhood, but more specifically, about an incident that happened in his neighborhood that left an indelible impression. One night, a man was murdered on his way to the train station, and the killer was never caught. But here's the kicker. The victim was shot with an arrow. And it gets even stranger. The street Shanley lived on was called Archer Street. It was almost too perfect for a believable script, but he started writing. The screenplay would be called Five Corners, a thriller about a psychotic young man who returns to his old neighborhood after being released from prison when a schoolteacher is killed with an arrow. Shanley pitched the script to studios, and before he knew it, his very first screenplay was picked up by an independent production company. Five Corners became a feature film starring Jodie Foster. It would win an Independent Spirit Award and land Shanley on the radar of some very interesting Hollywood types, including Sally Field. Sally Field was fresh off her second Academy Award for Places in the Heart. And while in the market for her next project, she came across the script for Five Corners. She fell in love with the story and invited Shanley to lunch. In a quintessential New York scene, the pair met at the Russian Tea Room. And there, in a red booth underneath the 24-karat gold ceiling, Field proposed an idea. What if Shanley wrote a Five Corners-esque movie script with Field in mind as the lead role? Shanley was more than happy to give it a go. He offered to write a script on spec, meaning he told Field not to pay him. If she liked what he came up with, they'd talk. Over the course of his career as a playwright-turned-screenwriter, Shanley had made an observation about acting. There didn't seem to be many roles for women in their late 30s. He wasn't wrong. According to Time magazine, female actors reach their career peak by age 30, their male counterparts at 46. Shanley said in his book he realized there wasn't enough interesting material for actresses past their quote-unquote Hollywood prime. There was certainly a market for this kind of script from a casting standpoint. Field was 39 at the time. Stanley had also recently gone through a divorce. And as he waded back into the dating scene, he noticed a commonality among many of the women he sat across from at restaurant tables. They wished to start a family, but Mr. Wright was nowhere to be found. They all knew someone they could marry, Mr. Good Enough, but that begged the question, should they settle and start a family, or should they keep looking? 
It was an interesting paradox that seemed to be plaguing women, again, in their late 30s. And it gave Shanley a script idea. What if a woman makes the conscious choice to settle for a man she likes but doesn't love because she's lost faith in the idea of having it all? But once she agrees to marry him and starts planning the wedding, boom, Mr. Right comes along. In this case, Mr. Good Enough's younger brother. It would take place in New York City, in an Italian neighborhood, just like the one Shanley lived in at the time, filled with big, loud families, ones that were greater than the sum of their dysfunctional parts. A romantic dramedy punctuated by the light of a full moon that, as Roger Ebert would later put it, drove people crazy with amore. Shanley would call it The Bride and the Wolf, based on his recurring metaphor in the script of women falling for wolfish brutes. And he presented the screenplay to Sally Field. When Field read The Bride and the Wolf, she loved it and began shopping the script around to studios. According to TriStar Pictures president of production at the time, there were only three bankable female stars of the mid-80s, Meryl Streep, Jane Fonda, and Sally Field. But even as one of those three, Field couldn't turn the heads of any studio executives. The Bride and the Wolf was rejected by studio after studio after studio. And without the prospect of financing, Field gave up. It was dead in the water. Little did they know, the script continued bouncing around, eventually bouncing all the way up to Toronto, where it landed on the desk of someone unexpected. Veteran director Norman Jewison. Jewison said in his memoir that The Bride and the Wolf was the type of script that made you suspect you haven't been offered a unique favor. It was dog-eared, coffee-stained, and well-thumbed. When he inquired as to who'd read the script before him, the answer was everybody. He said The Bride and the Wolf was about the worst title he'd ever seen on any cover in his entire career. It sounded like a horror movie, and a quick skim told him it was also excessively talky. But that night, he took it home. Norman Jewison is a Canadian filmmaker with a storied career. He's known for directing Jesus Christ Superstar, In the Heat of the Night, The Thomas Crown Affair, and Fiddler on the Roof, to name a few. Three of Jewison's films had received Best Picture nominations at the Academy Awards, along with two noms for Best Director. He'd become known as the Actors Director, because the stars of so many of his movies went home with gold statues. Like Sally Field, he was what you'd call bankable. And yet, at that point in time, you wouldn't really know it. Jewison had signed a seven-picture deal with Columbia and begun working on a project he was very excited about. It would be a remake of the 1937 film The Man Who Could Work Miracles. Jewison had seen the original as a child, and it held a special place in his heart. So he started collaborating on a contemporary rewrite of the script. As author Ira Wells tells the story in his biography of Jewison titled A Director's Life, 
the film was set to require some of the most elaborate special effects of Jewison's multi-decade career. It was budgeted for $19 million, and Richard Pryor was signed on to be the star. After a year of perfecting the script, shooting was scheduled to begin that spring. All that was left was to get the final okay from Columbia. Jewison waited, and waited, and waited for the go-ahead. But it never came. Nothing came. Crickets. Of course, there was a reason Jewison never heard anything. As happens often in Hollywood, there was yet another regime change in the upper ranks of the studio. The CEO of Columbia, who had championed Jewison's contract, was gone, and they'd brought in a new, younger CEO. Jewison's agent prodded the studio for the go-ahead on the man who could work miracles, but still, they heard nothing. A whole month passed, then a letter came to Jewison's office. Columbia would not be greenlighting the film. The shiny new CEO wasn't a big fan of the script. In fact, it appeared he wasn't a big fan of Norman Jewison's work across the board, reportedly calling some of his past films dull. Wells says that in that moment, Jewison became frustrated, and he let it be known. That didn't go over too well either. Now, not only was the film DOA, but Jewison's contract was terminated. His project and himself were rejected. There was one silver lining of severing ties with Columbia. Jewison was now free to shop the man who could work miracles around to other studios. But the rejections that would follow would prove to be even more painful. Jewison was rejected by every other studio in town. Wells said Jewison used to think once he'd sufficiently proven himself, once he'd delivered enough successful pictures, the dance would get easier. At 60, he was still facing rejection, still being told his dreams wouldn't work, still fighting tooth and nail for every film. He said he felt depressed and disillusioned. He said when no one believes in you, you take it personally. And it was at that moment that The Bride and the Wolf, a script that had been similarly put through the ringer, landed on his desk. As Jewison turned the pages of Shanley's screenplay, he says the story instantly grabbed him and wouldn't let go. He stood by his initial assessment that it was too dialogue-heavy, but he was an unflinching proponent of believability, in an actor, in a scene, in a script. And this story, though operatic, was believable. He said when he flipped over the last page, he knew he had a germ of an idea as to how this script could translate to screen. So he called John Patrick Shanley and invited him to his office in Toronto for a meeting. Jewison says Shanley was a tall, handsome, long-haired guy in his mid-30s, wearing corduroy pants and a look of casual disdain. He was a New Yorker. Shanley sat down, sipped his coffee, then said to Jewison, So, what pictures have you done? Jewison said in that moment he realized he was being auditioned by a 35-year-old who was one film deep in his career. Shanley then asked how many movies Jewison had ever made. He said, 
About 20, give or take. Shanley relaxed a little. He was probably in good hands, and the pair got to talking through the script. First things first, the title had to go. While the metaphor of the bride and the wolf was repeatedly present throughout the script, Jewison thought the moon was the predominant storytelling device, a veritable third party in each love scene. So he started tossing around alternate titles. He thought about calling it Moonglow, colon, The Bride and the Wolf. But Shanley didn't like that. So he tried shortening it to simply Moonglow. But eventually they found one they could both agree on. One that perfectly encapsulated the lead character's overwhelming attraction to one another. Moonstruck. Together with Shanley, Jewison massaged the script, defining its structure and trimming some of its less focused soliloquies, until they were left with something that closely resembled both Shanley's original idea and Jewison's vision. But Jewison had just learned the hard way that before they put any more time into the project, they should really secure a studio's commitment. So Jewison took Moonstruck back to Columbia Pictures, back to the CEO that rejected the man who could work miracles, and he pitched the script. But once again, that same CEO was unimpressed. And he wasn't alone. The producer of Midnight Express also chimed in, saying he didn't see any prestige or any money in the project. This time around, Columbia wasted no time rejecting him. Jewison was now tasked with figuring out who to pitch to next. It was the fall of 1986 in Toronto, and he'd heard through the grapevine that the president of MGM, Alan Ladd Jr., was in town for the Toronto International Film Festival. They'd met a few times years earlier, so Jewison invited Ladd and his assistant, John Goldwyn, to his office for a meeting. Jewison approached his pitch by explaining Moonstruck wasn't your typical romantic comedy, that it was, in his opinion, extraordinary. Not to mention low budget, not in need of special effects, and would require minimal extras. Goldwyn had seen Shanley's Five Corners and was familiar with his style, so Jewison sent them back to Los Angeles with two freshly typed copies of the script, sans coffee stains. The next morning, Alan Ladd Jr. called Jewison from the airport. John Goldwyn had already read the script and loved it. He asked how much Jewison saw it costing. He said no more than 10 or 12 million, give or take. Hmm, he said, we'll get back to you. Two days later, they had a deal. The next step for Jewison was to cast the lead roles. Loretta Castorini, a 37-year-old no-nonsense Italian-American widow, and Ronnie Camareri, her hopelessly tormented one-handed love interest. Norman Jewison knew exactly who he wanted to play Loretta. Cher. Jewison says Cher first landed on his radar back in her I Got You Babe days. He admired her sense of humor that seemed to translate seamlessly into impeccable comedic timing. 
The triple threat had ventured onto the big screen with recent films like Mask and Silkwood, for which she received an Academy Award nomination. But like Jewison, she had found herself in an unexpected predicament. Despite her mammoth success, first with television and Sonny and Cher, then in the music industry, then in film, there were still questions about her ability as an actress and about her likability. Remember, she wasn't considered one of the era's most bankable stars. In fact, an independent marketing study that year concluded that moviegoers, quote, wouldn't go out of their way to see Cher in a movie. The studio wondered if Cher wouldn't be taken seriously, that she'd peaked back in her variety show days. So they threw out other ideas. What about Liza Minnelli, Demi Moore, or Barbara Streisand? But Jewison didn't waver. He thought Cher had grit, which was essential for Loretta. Cher, on the other hand, wasn't so convinced. She'd read the script, but wasn't blown away. She feared Loretta wasn't flashy enough, big enough, like her off-screen persona. She was also acutely aware of the fact she wasn't actually Italian, nor was she comfortable attempting the accent. Rumor had it, those close to Cher were urging her not to take the film. So Jewison made his final pitch. He said, if you turn this role down, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And he got her. Babe. We'll be right back. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com code buttery exclusions apply see site for details you should celebrate yourself every day but some days you should celebrate with jewelry whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection blue nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. 
Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Casting the role of Ronnie Camareri would prove to be even more difficult than Loretta. They put out an open casting call, and every male actor in Hollywood auditioned, from Tom Cruise to Bill Murray to Ray Liotta. But none of them felt right. Jewison reportedly scribbled, Need Style and Too Young, on the back of Liotta's headshot. Then, a 23-year-old from Long Beach walked into the room the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola, who had recently changed his name to make his own way in the industry. His name was Nick Cage. Suffice to say, he wasn't yet the Nicholas Cage we know today. He'd just come off a film called Birdie, about two young men returning home from the horrors of the Vietnam War. Cage took method acting to a whole other level. He had removed his two real front teeth for that role. At the time, he had his sights set on a movie called Vampire's Kiss. It was a low-budget black comedy about a man that goes insane thinking he's a vampire. Cage wanted to be punk rock, the star of alternative new wave films. His agent recommended he not take the indie vampire flick and instead go for the tormented heartthrob in Moonstruck. But Cage read the script and said... I would never pay money to see this movie. He had been actively avoiding romantic comedies for fear of being pigeonholed. But his agent made a deal with him. If he auditioned for Moonstruck, he would stop trying to talk him out of Vampire's Kiss. So Cage auditioned. But the studio rejected him. MGM continued testing actors. And the next step was to bring in some of their frontrunners to do a screen test with Cher. But something became pretty clear pretty quickly. Cher was a force of nature, and a lot of the actors next to her in the frame disappeared almost entirely. They needed someone who could hold his own. So they brought back Nicolas Cage, and Cher said right away she knew. It was so right. Jewison thought he was fantastic. He played the role of Ronnie a little more intensely than he had envisioned. But that intensity brought a sort of raw desperation to the role, one that upped the believability factor of an otherwise over-the-top character. That may have all been true, but the studio still wasn't convinced. Cage also wasn't a bankable actor. Jewison said the truth was, in 1986, Cage was death at the box office. Most of his films had bombed, and he wasn't exactly the romantic or the comedy type. Plus, there was a bigger issue of believability at play. Cage was 23. Cher was 40. MGM argued nobody would buy their 17-year age gap. So Cher pulled out the big guns. 
she told MGM she wouldn't do the film without Cage. The studio tried to reason with her, but she really was a force of nature, and they found themselves at a stalemate for a full week. But Cher dug her heels in, and eventually the studio caved. Cage would be Ronnie. To make him look older, Jewison told Cage not to shave for a while, and to put on a tie, then loosen it, so he looked formal but disheveled. And they made the decision not to reveal Ronnie's age in the script. Olympia Dukakis was cast as Loretta's mother, Vincent Gardenia as her father, Danny Aiello became Mr. Good Enough, and they started filming. To say the process of filming Moonstruck was challenging is an understatement. Cher only had six weeks to film because she'd signed onto other projects that spring, so they were on a serious time crunch. Ronnie's first scene was shot in the basement of a Brooklyn bakery called Camerary Brothers Bakery. It had one of the few coal-fired ovens left in the city, the kind you couldn't capture on a soundstage. And, as a New Yorker himself, Shanley insisted they film in authentic New York locations. But the owners of the bakery refused to close shop while they filmed. They had a quota of 5,000 loaves of bread per day, and nothing was going to stop them. So Cage and Cher, Jewison, the lighting crew, and camera people had to work around the active bakery. Though Jewison says the incredible smell of rising pastries kept the actors present in the scene, it was hot down there. And humid. And the same went for the Italian restaurant in the film, Grand Ticino. They also refused to close for filming, so Jewison was forced to recreate their own Grand Ticino set at Toronto's Keg Mansion. They filmed many scenes outside on the streets of Brooklyn in the dead of winter. Cage said it was freezing cold, so much so that it became difficult to move, let alone say his lines. Often, Cher's fans would gather outside filming locations to get a glimpse of the goddess of pop in the flesh. Danny Aiello said he hated his character. As a career tough guy, he felt embarrassed to play such a, quote, wimp on screen. And to get that perfect moonlight shining into the apartment scenes, they had to construct a massive portable moon made out of 200 lights propped up onto a cherry picker. It was so bright, it lit up two full city blocks, and confused birds started singing their morning songs. It interrupted the filming. But even those hurdles paled in comparison to the growing unrest within the cast. Jewison suggested maybe it was a direct result of the tension between Loretta and Ronnie. But Nicolas Cage and Cher did not get along. That year, Cher told Newsweek that Cage would never become a successful mainstream actor. She said some days they'd have a blast on set. Other days, she'd be endlessly irritated by him. She said Cage wasn't fun to work with. In that same issue, Cage fired back, saying Cher required a good director. Otherwise, she was in trouble. Other actors on set alluded to a stubbornness in Cher and a refusal to take direction. 
But Olympia Dukakis had her own insights about the actress. She said that when one has a long career in show business, like Cher, they can become hardened. She said she probably became used to resisting people who had tried to control her in the past, forcing her to become understandably armored. They had many scenes of long dialogue to film, and sometimes Cage, equally intense on screen as off, would erupt in a fit of rage when a scene wasn't coming together. One time reportedly throwing a chair across the room. Jewison often had to remind the cast to snap out of it and get through the scene. Jewison says he imagined Shanley's characters in operatic terms. Loretta as the lyric soprano, her fiancé, the baritone, Ronnie, the tenor, and her father, Cosmo, the bass. Dukakis said Jewison's vision went right over everyone's heads. She didn't expect much out of the experience. It was looking like a giant flop. One day, the cast was sitting around chatting when someone asked Cher what she thought was going to happen with the movie. Without a word, she gave the thumbs down. When they wrapped filming, Cher said she was proud of her performance, but she also declared no one would ever see the movie. It was too, quote, old-fashioned. Unfortunately, MGM felt the same way. As the studio watched the final cut, they feared the movie didn't fit neatly into any genre. It was a comedy, but also romantic, but also a drama, but also kind of an opera, minus the music. Without a target market, there was no discernible release plan. So they decided to shelve Moonstruck and give the big push instead to a Goldie Hawn-Kurt Russell movie called Overboard. That one had definite box office potential. But as Overboard rolled out, it started to flounder. The picture wasn't doing as well as they'd hoped, so MGM decided to pivot and push Moonstruck instead. Just before Christmas Day 1987, Moonstruck premiered. In the back of a car one night on the way to a screening of the film in Toronto, Norman Jewison leaned over to Olympia Dukakis and said, you know you're gonna get an Academy Award for this, right? She said she looked at him like he was insane. Their little movie about a little Italian lady She chalked it up to a director bolstering his cast before a screening. He was just being nice. But later that night, their screening was met with, quote, rousing applause. Moonstruck would go on to rake in $116 million at the box office. Not bad for a 10, maybe $12 million budget, give or take making it one of the highest-earning films of the year, beating out Lethal Weapon and The Untouchables. Roger Ebert gave it four stars. Then came the 1988 Academy Awards. Moonstruck received six nominations. Best Director for Norman Jewison, Best Actress for Cher, Best Supporting Actress for Olympia Dukakis, Best Supporting Actor for Vincent Gardenia, Best Screenplay for John Patrick Shanley, and Best Picture. 
Nicolas Cage wasn't nominated, which Roger Ebert considered to be a snub. But the cast found their seats in L.A.'s Shrine Auditorium for the 60th annual Oscar ceremony. Paul Newman took to the stage to announce that year's Best Actress Award. It was a tough category. Glenn Close, Holly Hunter, Sally Kirkland, and Meryl Streep, Cher's former Silkwood co-star. He opened the envelope. The winning actress is... Cher in Moonstruck. She said it was an out-of-body experience. Then, Olympia Dukakis won for Best Supporting Actress. Then, John Patrick Shanley took home the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. In his speech, he thanked everyone who'd ever, quote, punched him or kissed him. At the end of the night, Moonstruck lost Best Picture to The Last Emperor. Best Supporting Actor went to Sean Connery for The Untouchables. And Bernardo Bernaducci took home the Academy Award for Best Director. Biographer Ira Wells says the Best Director loss for Jewison was lacerating. But he says, in the end, he got everything he wanted. The script, rejected by countless studios, told by executives it would never earn any prestige or any money, with non-bankable actors told they'd never be taken seriously in their roles, and a studio that didn't think the movie was marketable, became a modern classic. Jewison says, none of us know what's going to make a good movie. But once in a blue moon, it all falls into place. The coffee ring said it all. When director Norman Jewison saw those stains on the screenplay, he instantly knew it had been turned down by dozens of studios. Yet there sat a well-thumbed, dog-eared screenplay that would eventually win an Academy Award. As someone once said, you can be the right package, just delivered to the wrong address. And let's talk about that package. Everyone involved in this film was in a state of rejection. Writer John Patrick Shanley could find no buyers for this screenplay. Director Norman Jewison was facing rejection at the age of 60, and couldn't get a project greenlit even after a legendary career directing movies. Cher was thought of as not bankable by Hollywood. Nicolas Cage was considered death at the box office. Olympia Dukakis was a struggling theater actress, sending her kids to college on maxed out credit cards. Danny Aiello was trying to cobble together an acting career with a series of small roles. And John Mahoney, who played the college professor trying to date younger women, was a journeyman actor with no breakthrough insight. But this amazing collection of people overcame all that resistance to create a film that was so funny and so moving, it achieved something rare. It became one of the few romantic comedies to ever be nominated for an Oscar. That's the ultimate irony with comedies. They are rarely taken seriously. When Studio MGM saw the movie, they said there would be no audience for it, no target group, it was too old school. The cast feared no one would see the film, yet they were so proud of the work they had done together. But Moonstruck would change all their lives. Cher was suddenly bankable. 
Olympia Dukakis never had to worry about her credit cards again. John Patrick Shanley would eventually win a Pulitzer. Norman Jewison would be given the Irving G. Thalberg Lifetime Achievement Award by the Academy. Nicholas Cage would win his own Oscar a few years later. Danny Aiello would become an in-demand actor. And John Mahoney landed in the Emmy-winning sitcom Frasier. Norman Jewison once said, It's you against the world. Everybody is trying to tell you something different, and they're always putting obstacles in your way. You have to fight for what you believe in. And may I add, if you ever stop fighting for what you believe in, you better snap out of it. Never, ever give up. Moonstruck. Academy Awards, 3. Golden Globe Awards, 2. Golden Globe Nominations, 5. Top 10 Greatest Romantic Comedies of All Time, American Film Institute. That's Amore. The Rejection Podcast is an apostrophe podcast production and is recorded in an Airstream mobile recording studio. This series is hosted and written by me, Sydney O'Reilly. Research, Allison Pinches. Director, Callie O'Reilly. We regret to inform you, our engineer is Jeff Devine. Producer, Debbie O'Reilly. Theme music by Ian Lefevre and Ari Posner. Major sources for this episode are listed in the show notes on our website, apostrophepodcasts.ca slash rejection. Follow us on social at apostrophe pod. Rate and review this podcast wherever you like to listen. And while you're there, let us know of any rejection stories you'd like to hear. This series is executive produced by Terry O'Reilly. See you next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack 
for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.